Minute of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respect to Elders past and present and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode is set across modern-day New York and Canada, or on the lands of the Greater Haudenosaunee Confederacy, one of the longest-lasting participatory democracies in the world, which continues to this day. And so we also pay our respects to the nations within the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. This podcast contains references to violence and atrocities committed against First Nations Americans during colonisation and the American Revolutionary War. It also contains some coarse language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I love out intro music. Yeah. Wait, did I find it? You did. Oh, thank you. <laughs> did you a made a good job. choice. Go, Nicola. Hi, I'm Nicola. I've just finished placement and I am very, very tired. And I'm Hannah and I did not choose to research this episode at all because I'm teaching American history this week. That is slanderous lies and I will fight anyone. Lies, damned lies and statistics. And welcome to Women of War, where we use our historical training to point out the incomprehensible idea that women were also involved in war throughout history. In what way was a woman involved in what war this week, Hannah? Well, Nicola, this week, as you may have guessed from the intro, uh, we're looking at American war. Specifically, the war that made the modern United States of America, as we now know it, eventually come to be. The American Revolution. And I promise I will try and limit my Hamilton singing, but I make no promises. Hamilton? No. But also, it's funny, I was in a meeting with like the VCAR, um, the Victorian Certificate of Education like markers and for history, and they were like, there's a lot of references to Hamilton and the American <laughs> Revolution and stuff. And it's a mix of, like, they just might get confused, but also... Mm-hmm. Ha- that musicals mm-hmm. messed with a few people's minds yeah. in the best possible way. Like grey musical, historical accuracy. It's not about the. It's yeah, yeah. It's about the vibe. Yeah, it's, it's about the vibe. It's, it's the a grey musical. It's the constitution. It's Marbo. It's the vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So, today we're looking at Mary Molly Brandt, also known as Gonwatsi Jayani, or Degonwadonti, a Mohawk leader who helped convince the Haudenosaunee Confederacy to support the British in the war. So I'm quite excited for this episode because we kind of we're getting to discuss the side of history where you don't always sort of agree with the historical decisions when you're looking back. Like it's sort of like that may have not been the best decision, but we also have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, or, or why are you siding with them? They're the yeah, bad guys. They're the bad guys. Cyril, are we the bad guys? So it's just I'm I'm excited because I feel like this is the first is this is the first one we've done where it's sort of a bit more complicated like that. I well, Matahari was kind of complicated, but not really. Yeah, in a way, I think so because the closest. So this is going to be a second last episode, and so next season I'm definitely going to be looking at a couple of women who supported the Nazi Party. But that's a more clear cut example of don't do that. Don't support the Whereas Nazi Party. This is very much more a time of utter survival and clawing yeah. back your land. So every, what else are you going to do? Every option is shit. Yeah. So, it, but it's sort of you know, we look back and we're like, why would you do that? You fool! But hindsight. Yeah, exactly. So I'm excited. I think it'd be interesting. Um, but before we get philosophical, let's find out who Molly Brandt actually was. Molly Brandt was born in 1736, probably in the Mohawk Valley, new modern day New York. She was from the wolf tribe of the Mohawk or Kanyehaka people of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy. 
Most of the literature on Molly and the Confederacy in the Revolutionary War refers to them as the Iroquois Confederacy, but we've chosen to use the Haudenosaunee Confederacy because it's always polite to actually use the name people choose for themselves, and the Haudenosaunee is the preferred name by the Haudenosaunee themselves. Iroquois is actually, that's the third different pronunciation, but I'm just going to keep going, is the, actually a French adaptation of a derogatory Wyandotte name for the Haudenosaunee. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy is a historical alliance of six First Nations tribes in the northeast of North America, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, Mohawk, and Tuscarora. The exact date the Confederacy joined together is unknown, but it was before Europeans began colonization, and thus the Confederacy has been described as the oldest continuing participatory democracy in the world. Joining together under one constitution and one law was to unite the different nations and work towards peaceful conflict resolution. But everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. (laughs) For our episode today, the tribe you want to remember is the Mohawk Nation. So Mohawk is the Dutch interpretation of the Algonquian name for their neighbours, the Kanyan Kehaka. Um, but Mohawk now seems to be the primary name of the tribe, so we're going to stick with that. So Mohawk territory stretched up into Quebec and Ontario and down into New Jersey and Pennsylvania. The Mohawk people were traditionally responsible for defending the eastern part of the Haudenosaunee territory and their proximity to fur traders in Montreal and Albany ensured that Mohawk were one of the most influential tribes in the Confederacy. And because we both really struggled with this, Confederacy here is shorthand for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and not like, the South shall rise again, bunch of racist rednecks. It's about states' rights. States' rights to own people. So when we say Confederacy, it's Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I really wish they changed the name to, like, the Haudenosaunee Federation, but whatever. Every every time I read Confederacy, I get a bit of, like, <laughs> But, yep. yeah. By the time of this episode, Mohawks farmed maize and had extensive agriculture, though they were still heavily involved in conflicts and disputes, as well as more traditionalist hunting and fishing. So you know where this story is going. White people. White people. We're like rats. But then, like, I feel like studies have shown that rats have more empathy. You haven't read The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, have you? I have not. It's a Terry Pratchett book. I think you should I'm read shocked. It. I, I quite like rats. Rats are great. I have rodents for remo- too. So. For removing two thirds <laughs> of the population of Europe, they're especially great. Let's bring back rats. No. Anyway. Um, so in 1609, the French arrived under, under sam- Sample? Sampled in Champlain. It's Monday morning. I'm only halfway through my coffee. So, literally, actually. Yeah. In 1609, the French arrived under Samuel de Champlain, who joined with Huron, Algonquian, and Montagnier warriors to attack their traditional enemy, the Mohawks. Champlain and his soldiers confronted around 200 Mohawk warriors, killing three Mohawk chiefs with his gun, which is just plain rude. This event, rather unsurprisingly, didn't sit too well with the Mohawks or the wider Haudenosaunee Confederacy and would lead to the Beaver Wars, which is less cute than it sounds and definitely less fun for the beavers than it sounds. Uh, But that's another war, so that's all we're going to say on that. Busy little beavers. All right. Over the 17th century, Europeans made increasing inroads into Mohawk territory through trade, war and epidemics like smallpox and the dreaded Christianity. As with most examples of European diseases introduced into First Nations populations, the smallpox epidemic of the 1630s killed nearly 70% of the Mohawk population because they had no inborn immunity. Honestly, syphilis is just not enough of a payback. The French were obviously there, and so were the Dutch. 
who became key trade partners with the Mohawks. Because of their friendly relationship with the Dutch, and friendly is being used quite loosely here, the Mohawks permitted a Dutch missionary to teach them the ways of Protestantism. The Dutch also gave Mohawks guns, so that was nice. So, this is how the Dutch get away with this one, though. When the Dutch later got beaten by the English in the 1660s and just left, the Mohawks traded with the English and became their sometime allies. New Netherland? Isn't it New Amsterdam? No, it's New ah! Netherland. I know. I was really confused. I was like, I think it was, I've, I've forgotten because it was several days ago when I Googled it, but it was like New Amsterdam and then New Netherland or something. Ah. And so I was, or New, no, no. Was it like... New Holland? New, no, that was Australia. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> it was like that. New York, New York, like the city, and then like state. the state. So I think it was something like that, I think. All right. I may be talking out of my ass. Um, let's just, you know. I understand. I'm with you now. Yeah. New Netherland became New York. Even old New York was once to Amsterdam. Why'd they change it? I can't say. People, People just, just liked it better that way. So. so now we get to the 1730s, when Molly was born. Her family was from Kanajahari, and Molly grew up there with her younger brother, Joseph, her mother and her stepfather, Brant Kanagara Dunkwa, often said to be Nicus Brant, though recent historians suggest it was actually a mistake made by early historians combining multiple figures into one. Um, so Brant was a prominent chief of the Mohawk Turtle Clan and possibly also had some Dutch ancestry, depending on who you ask. Early historians spent a lot of time trying to figure out who Molly's biological father was, but that's not really relevant um, in Mohawk society because it was matrilineal. And like so- Judaism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so kinship was passed down through the mother, Margaret. So Molly and Joseph took their stepfather's name as their own last name, though, which I think is a sign of respect. Mm. We've all, it could also be a way of fitting in with the European. Yeah, there um, was that concept. as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've talked about archival silences on this podcast before, and that also applies here because we have very little information about Molly's early life. Molly was educated most likely through the English missions, and so she grew up knowing European customs as well as being fluent in the English language alongside the Mohawk language. Her stepfather owned a large house and lived like a European, which would have contributed to Molly's fluency in European practices. So when Molly was 18 in 1754, she accompanied her stepfather with a delegation of Mohawk leaders to Philadelphia to discuss fraudulent land transactions by colonial leaders. Colonials? Fraudulent land? I know. Some historians have suggested that this was part of Molly's training as a clan matron, which was a powerful position in a Mohawk tribe because the clan matron held not only the power to choose the next Mohawk chief, but also held economic power because they controlled the agricultural land. So while growing up, Molly would have had regular contact with General Sir William Johnson, the British Superintendent for Indian Affairs, at least Indigenous Affairs, there you go, which i got to assume is similar to the protector of the Aborigines air quotes, job, air quotes, in colonial Australia, i.e. the role's not really about protecting the interests of First Nations people, but rather preserving colonists' agendas. Um, Reading his biography, he did learn the Mohawk language and the Haudenosaunee customs, but he also ended up with tens of thousands of acres of Mohawk land. So we'll leave you to work out where his priorities were. Um, He was apparently well-respected by the Mohawk people, who called him Warogie Gay. But it may not all be black and white here. I I know what I think of him. Anyway, Johnson. I know served, what I think of him uh, too. Yeah. Anyway, Johnson served as a superintendent from 1956. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, get out of the Seven, 20th century. 1756 until he died in 1774. And while he was in this role, he regularly stayed at the house of his friend Brand Kanagara Donkwa. During these visits, it's likely that Johnson met the young Molly. Please remember this fact for later. 
So just before we get to the revolution, we're going to do a quick drive-by of the Seven Years' War. <laughs> so in a tale as old as time, Britain and France were at war again. Thank God Eurovision put a Wait, stop to that. Wait, slow down. I'm confused. Britain and France, historical enemies. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm continually at war just because. Yeah. Um, so the rest of Europe had also joined the party, and it was all very messy, uh, both in Eurovision and the war. Uh, but the part that really concerns us is France and Britain's colonial conquests. So as part of this war, the Seven Years' War, the French and the British were fighting for control of North America. You know, who cares about what the people actually living there think? And thus we have the French and Indian War, which was nowhere near India. Thanks, Columbus. Incidentally, the French and the British were actually also fighting over India, because of course they were. Britain won. So anyway, the French are up in Canada, the British are down in the modern US, and they're both glaring at each other across the border until the British think the French look a bit shifty and try to stop them colonising all of the continent. The Mohawk are probably looking at both the Brits and the French thinking, what a load of wankers, get off my lawn, and just trying to generally stay out of it. In this pissing contest, Johnson was a crucial figure and he convinced the Mohawk to ally themselves with the British. And the Brits were very happy with this because they hadn't brought enough troops of their own because they were spreading themselves quite thin. For planning. Johnson was promoted to the rank of Major General, he was a very modern one, and he led an army of Brits and Mohawks who narrowly defeated the French at the Battle of Lake George in September 1755. At this point, though Johnson tried to convince his Mohawk allies that they should try and push on after their victory into French territory, the Mohawks went, yeah, nah, mate, we're going home to grieve our losses. So in 1759, Molly and Johnson began a common law marriage. Um, or at least they weren't married according to English law, but they may have been married in a Mohawk So there's ceremony. no paperwork. Basically. So there's no paperwork. Which is um, in the archive and there's no paperwork. It's not in the archive. Ergo, it didn't happen. Ergo, it yeah, didn't exist. Yeah. So they're living as husband and wife um, in some form of legality. I'm also picturing him as Alec Baldwin, so I'm like 100% okay with this. You're in a really weird Alec Baldwin mood at the moment. I'm always in an Alec Baldwin mood. Okay. I just hide it. I don't get it, oh, but okay. Sorry, Mum. All right. Um, so... <laughs> Previously, Johnson had been in a common-law marriage to the German Catherine Weisenberg after their relationship began when he purchased the remainder of her indentured contract. Okay, I didn't know that bit. So, look, you know, in case you're not familiar, indentured servitude is almost a form of slavery. um, But not quite. Not quite. So don't, yeah, a lot of, some white people, especially in the US, go like, the Irish were enslaved as well. Oh, God, no, they weren't. Ergo, slave, you know, and that, yeah. they use it as an excuse yeah. against... No, 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 no. Sorry, um, No, 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 no. Like, no. Okay. Yeah, no. It's a form almost like slavery but in that actually. you're not getting paid. It's a term of contract. You're, like, brought over to America. I'll work for you for seven years, and then I get my freedom. Yeah. So, you know, not slavery. Definitely not slavery. You still it's have... It's like you're working for room and board, but yeah. it usually isn't that nice. Yeah. It was still a pretty shitty system. Um, So I feel like, you know, buying someone's contract and then marrying them, with some air quotes here, is a little bit of a power imbalance. I do know also, sorry, there was also cases of, like, free men who would fall in love with enslaved women who were owned by other men Mm. and they would buy their contract and free them and then marry them. Mm. So it could be a lot of things, yeah. It could be. It's a complicated It's a complicated... But it's there a, is a massive power It's imbalance. a grey line. Even if it's a pure love match, I think there's still a power and imbalance. And even just the gender differences, because yeah. you are more powerful as a male in this period. Yeah. You just have more yeah. power. So it's it's very, you know, imbalanced there. Um, then he was... At the same time, actually, he was also in a relationship with another Mohawk woman, um, possibly more. We don't actually know how many children he ended up having. Um, he had... By the time he got together with Molly, he was 49 and she was 23, and he had at least six living children. 
So, like, I'm definitely, I'm not saying that there can't be healthy relationships with very large age gaps, but there are often power imbalances in those relationships. Um, this is like one of those archival silences I'd love some insight in um, because all the sources basically go, and then Molly got married, and they're in a relationship, end of, nothing more to say. Um, but I want to know why. Like, was it convenience? Was it political? Was it something approaching level of friendship? Like, a lot of what we have in this period of Molly's life comes from letters of Johnson's secretary and son-in-law, Daniel Klaus, no relation to Santa, ah. who was a bit of a Molly fan. And so we have to read about her through his eyes. So based on this, there appears to be some sort of attraction from both parties. But since Johnson's relationship with Molly also helped him politically with the Mohawks, like, who knows? I'm sure if you look like Alec Baldwin, there was attraction. So Molly was well-respected and managed <laughs> to inhabit both worlds with relative ease. She continued to dress in traditional Mohawk style, but may have incorporated European materials in her dress, like many influential Mohawks in this period. Molly herself knew how influential she could be. She had grown up in a matrilineal society that valued the opinions of women. Radical notion. And she knew she had influence over Mohawk tribe as well as other nations in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So in 1759, they had their first child, Peter, who would be the first of eight. Um, from 1763, the family lived at Johnson Hall, which was a two-storey Georgian-style house. Molly took charge immediately of the household and managed the estate when Johnson was away. Uh, though his will described her as his housekeeper, their relationship wasn't hidden, and Molly was treated by their contemporaries as not only his wife, but his political equal. So some historians have also suggested that Molly assumed responsibility for the Department of Indian Affairs while her husband was away. The Johnson household was definitely a central meeting place for both British officials and Mohawk chiefs, as well as the everyday people from both groups. So based on accounts from the time, Molly appears to have perfectly embodied the European version of an acceptable, powerful woman. One English visitor to Johnson Hall wrote that Molly was, quote, quiet in demeanour on occasion and possessed a calm dignity that bespoke a native pride and consciousness of her power. She seldom imposed herself into the picture, but no one was in her presence without being aware of her, unquote. That, that's the energy I want to bring into the room with me. I know, right? <sighs> this pre-revolution period was one of repeated conflicts between the British and the First Nations Americans. After the end of the French and Indian War in 1763, the Treaty of Paris, not to be confused with the other 32 treaties of Paris about history, come on, France! Come on, France! Stop putting Napoleon in charge! <laughs> ended the war and redistributed all lands the French had claimed in North America to the Brits. As you can probably expect, the people living on those lands were a little apprehensive about having someone else come in and change things up when they'd just broken in their first colonisers. First Nations, people from Ohio County, Illinois County and the Great Lakes region were worried that the Brits would come in and take more of their land. Which is very understandable. I wonder why they worried yeah. that. When the Brits won the war, George III, the Mad King George, issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which recognised First Nations land ownership and was supposed to stop British colonists from settling on any land that had not been ceded by a treaty. Shockingly, in practice, settlers ignored this and settled wherever the hell they pleased. On top of this, while the French were happy to trade with First Nations people and provide modern weapons for hunting, the Brits were not. This lack of respect all round increased hostility against the British, and a few months into 1763, Chief Pontiac from the Ottawa Nation, not to be confused with Doug Judy, the Pontiac bandit, ah. led a group of First Nations tribes in a rebellion against the British that lasted officially for three years, but really about one year in practice. Most of the fighting only lasted until early 1764, but it wasn't until 1766 that the Pontiac bandit signed a peace treaty with the British and his rebellion was officially ended. So what has this got to do with Molly? And by Molly, I mean Molly Brand. So, not the drug. 
That's not what I meant, but okay, Hannah. What did you mean? No, that's totally not what I meant. I don't know anything about drugs. Oh, okay. So this is scene setting, basically. Um, This was the climate going into the revolution between the two different worlds that Molly inhabited. During these years, and up until 1774, when, spoiler alert, Johnson dies, Johnson House would be the stage for discussions between the British government and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy leaders. As not only the mistress of the house, but also an influential clan mother by this point, Molly would act as an intermediary in such discussions, arguing for the rights of First Nations people, while also persuading Confederacy leaders to follow British laws. By 1768, British settlers were continually encroaching into First Nations territory in direct contradiction to the Royal Proclamation. So, Johnson called a great council with 900 Confederacy leaders to propose a new boundary between British settlement and Haudenosaunee lands. This proposal meant that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy tribes would have to give up more of their land, but the new line would be more permanent than the one set out in the Royal Proclamation. The Fort Stanwix Treaty of 1768 was signed by a representative from each of the Confederacy's Six Nations and Johnson. In return for ceding land south of the Ohio River to the British, the Confederacy was gifted money and items worth around £10,000, which is quite a lot today. Probably not worth your ancestral lands, but they're in a corner. They're in a different They're in a corner. Spot. Other tribes living in the area, including the Delaware, the Seneca Cayuga, and the Shawnee, however, did not agree that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy had the right to sign over this land to the British, which shows you that participatory democracies everywhere don't always let everyone participatory. They weren't in the participatory democracy. I know, but like, they probably should have had a voice. Yes. In this case. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So, in the end, white settlers ignored the treaty anyway. Wow! Of course they did. Uh, and began moving into territory not permitted by the treaty. Hang on, I have to pick my jaw up off the floor. I know, right? Who could have predicted this? In response, First Nations tribes who had not signed the treaty raided white settlements to protect their land. Johnson called a council of First Nations people in 1774 where he tried to persuade the tribes in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy not to join in these attacks. During this council, Johnson, who had been struggling with health, his health for two years, gave a long speech in the sun to gather delegates. Two hours later, he was dead. That was fast-moving melanoma, i got to say. Was. It like, was. Put sunscreen Slip, on, folks. slop, slap, seek, slide. That's all i got to say to you. Yep, yep. Molly took her eight children back to Kanajahari, where she owned several houses, and though she was not legally married to Johnson according to English law, she still had plenty in his will to live off. Molly and her children would live in Kanajahari for three years, um, and she likely also supplemented her income at this point by setting up a store selling supplies to local people. Molly continued to live in both worlds, hosting both Mohawk and other Haudenosaunee nations, as well as white settlers in her home. She would hand out presents to the Haudenosaunee people, which in turn contributed to her continual influence in the Confederacy. Her store became the place where all went to gossip and exchange news of the growing tensions on the continent. So, now we get to the revolution. Do we really need a recap of what led to here? I mean, like, people have seen Hamilton. We should probably recap, and not by singing anything written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. This is disappointing. I know. But understandable. Yeah. So this is definitely going to be the Cliff Notes version of the revolution. So remember the Seven Years' War? Well, until that point, the Brits had mostly left the American colonies alone to muddle along by themselves. Then France sniggered the wrong way, <laughs> so the Brits went to war again <laughs> and incurred massive debts again. <laughs> To pay off said debts, the British began enforcing strict taxes on the colonies, interfering more in colonial administration and basically just getting in everyone's faces. British troops were stationed in America and by the mid-1770s, everyone was just pretty damn pissed off at each other. What I do say, old chap. 
There were skirmishes in the streets, games of go fish played with tea in the Boston Harbour. David Diggs David was there. Diggs was not there. You are not helping. I'm sorry. He's so hot, though. He's so hot. Oh, my God. <laughs> to cut a long story short, uh, the British and the American colonists didn't agree who should run things. There's trouble in the air. You can Not helping. It. Sorry. By 1775, the Patriots. God, I, I hate that word because of how it's been co-opted by right-wing wankers. Oh, wait till you get to our episode on Joan of Arc, man. <laughs> anyway, the Patriots were training and arming themselves in case the British attacked. Good plan, because in April, British troops went to arrest some Patriot leaders in Lexington and were greeted by an organised militia. As you would expect when soldiers come across a small armed force, gunfire was exchanged in what would become the first official shots of the American Revolutionary War. Bang, bang. At the time, this didn't immediately seem to indicate revolution was imminent. Though some Americans wanted to declare independence from Britain, many hoped to settle things without more drama. So we get to June 1775. I'm not singing that. Here comes a general. Rise Rise up. up. The revolutionaries form the Continental Congress and appoint Washington as the commander of the Continental Army. Washington goes to Boston, tries to assert some order of the militia, and turns them into an army. In the beginning, fighting between the revolutionaries and British loyalists was mostly in the north which, importantly for this episode, was also around the lands of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. At the beginning of the war, the general consensus among Haudenosaunee tribes was not my circus, not my monkeys, Um, and so the Confederacy voted to be the Switzerland of this war and stay neutral in what many saw as a British civil war. This became increasingly difficult when the fighting was quite literally on their doorstep. Um, it, like, it's a bit hard to stay out of a punch-up, you know, when like you're a metre away from the two dudes going at it and you're getting blood and spit all over you. So the Confederacy decided that it needed to pick a side to support, to just get this war done. The problem came in choosing which side to pick. The British hadn't exactly been the best of neighbours when it came to following the rules of various (laughs) treaties, but they also kept the Haudenosaunee supplied with guns, which was nice, because they might be Native Americans, but they're still Americans. The colonists (laughs) had similarly not been great neighbours, but they were like, excuse me, do you mind if I build a house right where you live? Great, thanks so much. But as Molly herself shows, there were also neighbour... Neighbourships? Neighbourships is not a word. <laughs> there were also relationships between the colonists and the Haudenosaunee. They were intermarriage, as she herself showed. And, like, even if you're not married to them or friends with them, your neighbour might be a bit of a dick. But if you make some mean pot roast, you might get annoyed if someone else moves in who can't even boil an egg. Like, better the devil you know, I feel like, in this situation. Better the British you know. Better the, the British American you know. Zone. You know what they're doing. You know how to deal with them a bit by this point. And you also know they don't have a lot of troops. Yeah. So, and you know, like you've been dealing with them for a long time. Like you know how they run things yeah. as opposed to this new people coming and being like, we're going to start a new government. Yeah. And you're like, how's that going to work for us? Are you including us? Nope. Nope. Okay. I'm not surprised. I'm just disappointed. Mm-hmm. So the number of patriots in the area grew through the influence of men like Philip Schuyler. While the British ordered... I hear he's loaded. I knew you'd come around eventually. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, While the British ordered the new superintendent of Indian affairs, Guy Johnson, who was nephew of the last Johnson, to organise a force of Haudenosaunee warriors to rendezvous with the British forces up in Canada. On his way, this force was also supposed to convince other members of the neutral Haudenosaunee confederacy to join the side of the British. Soon, Molly's brother Joseph, who would also become a key revolutionary fighter himself, um, and there's a lot more about him than Molly, which is very rude, began gathering his own force of both Haudenosaunee and white loyalists to join Guy Johnson's force. So we're going to call him Guy so as not to confuse him with the other Johnson because it would be very helpful if someone outside the Johnson family had been involved in this You war. just don't want to get your Johnsons confused, yeah. The force <laughs> set off on May 31st, 1775, up the Mohawk River while Molly remained in Kanajahari. 
Guy's force first went to a council at Fort Ontario, where First Nations people were gathering to discuss what to do about the war. By the end of the conference, Guy had a few hundred Haudenosaunee warriors on his side, but they joined reluctantly. Most in attendance at the conference returned home rather than continuing on to Montreal. Very fair. Guy's force finally arrived in Montreal on July 17, 1775, to a rather lacklustre reception. Yay! Pretty much. The governor of Quebec, another guy named Guy, General Guy Carlton, to be precise, had been a rival of the original Sir William Johnson for the fur trade and was still a bit of bitch and didn't want support from the Johnsons or the Haudenosaunee. Like, it's war, mate. Like, don't be petty. But, you know, whatever. Guy Johnson told Guy Carlton that he had orders from the British to join up with Carlton's force, but in the end it didn't really matter because while the plan had been to march on the revolutionary force from the north, the Patriots were now actually about to barge into Canada. Knock, knock. So Johnson Haudenosaunee forced conference with Canadian First Nations people at the end of July. Carlton refused to employ the Haudenosaunee force anywhere except to protect the Canadian front, much to the confusion of the warriors themselves, including Joseph Brandt. So now, back in Kanajahari. Molly joined a conference between Mohawk chiefs and Washington's secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Tench Tillman. Fucking loser. Why would you call your kid Tench? Anyway, of Molly, Tillman wrote that the Haudenosaunee, quote, pay her great respect, and I am afraid that her influence will give us some trouble, for we are informed that she is entirely in the interests of Guy Johnson, who is in Canada, end quote. Funnily enough, Guy wasn't in Canada for all that much longer. He and Joseph Brandt sailed to England when they got sick of Carlton not deploying the Haudenosaunee force. But that's a very long tangent that we're going to skip right over. Sorry, I'm not sick sorry. of you, Carlton. I'm going back to England. Fuck you. Pretty much. That's, that's what happened. Um, we're here for Molly. So what you need to know, like what the takeaway is, Guy and Joseph found their time in England positive and returned to America believing that King George had Haudenosaunee interests in mind. Quebec and Montreal became battle hotspots as the Continental Army attempted to gain control of Quebec in late 1775. Why Quebec, you may ask? Well, partly the revolutionaries saw that it would be very nice to have the whole continent united into one American nation. Lovely idea. And if Quebec were left in the hands of the British, who'd want it from the French earlier, in case you're wondering why the British have that chunk of French Canada, if the British held Quebec, then it would continue to threaten the security of the American colonies. By mid-November 1775, Montreal had fallen to the Patriots, and so... Patriots? Patriots. Patriots. And so the Continental Army turned their attention to Quebec City. Under General... I'm so mad at you right now. (laughs) Under General Montgomery, who would later catch a bullet in the neck in Quebec. Well, in summary, under Montgomery, the Continental Army lay siege to Quebec City until May 1776. When the British reinforcements arrived and drove the Americans back to New York. Right. So while all this is going on, Molly was only about 300 kilometres away from Montreal and 600-ish kilometres away from Quebec City. And if you use imperial measurements, don't because (laughs) metric is better um, and Google it yourself. So if you're going for a casual walk, that's a long way. If you're in the middle of a war, not so much. Molly remained in Kanajahari monitoring the situation from her store listening to gossip and keeping her finger on the pulse in case things got a bit dicey. But while she was keeping an eye on those around her, she was also under surveillance herself as a suspected loyalist. Patriots thought she was hiding loyalists and perhaps even sending supplies to British forces in Canada. A well-grounded suspicion since Molly firmly believed that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy should support the British in the war. This belief was probably helped by her brother's positive reception in England, which had convinced him that the British would uphold their bargain 
this time <laughs> and give the Haudenosaunee their land back and protect First Nations interests at the end of the war. But it was also in honour of her husband's memory. Like, she knew he would have supported the British and so she was like, well, that's what Johnson would have wanted, so I will do the same. I'm nodding. And also her kids are half British by that logic. Yeah. Yeah. A few months after the British regained Quebec, the Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> On July 4th, 1776, Joseph Brandt, newly arrived back in America, soon began trying to build First Nations support for the British. In August 1777, Brandt was sent with his forces, known as Brandt's Volunteers, to join the British in retaking Fort Stanwix. In Kanajahari, Molly had noticed that her neighbour, General Herkheimer, was going to take a militia to join the revolutionaries in defending Stanwix. Herkheimer's militia was also accompanied by a small force of Oneida warriors. And so Molly sent a messenger to her brother, warning that 800 patriots were marching towards him. Brandt's volunteers marched with other loyalists to stop Herkheimer's force, ambushing the patriots at the Oneida village of Oriska on August 6, 1777, in what became known as the Battle of Oriskani. It was a brutal battle, with heavy casualties on both sides. This battle marked the final nail in the coffin of the Haudenosaunee neutrality. Two of the original tribes from the Confederacy had fought on opposite sides at Ariska and had both suffered significant losses, including the Oneida's village itself. In retaliation for Ariska, Oneida members set Mohawk homes and villages alight. The Confederacy was split. Molly herself was now in danger. The Tryon County Committee of Safety, which was in essence the local police force, suspected that it was her who had warned the British of Herkimer's militia, and she was forced to flee Mohawk Valley with her children or else she'd be arrested. So the Brants fled to Lake Cayuga, where they found shelter with Molly's distant relatives. Meanwhile, the Loyalists and the Patriots once again engaged in battle at Saratoga in what would become a key turning point in the revolution. In September and October 1777, three British forces attempted to converge on New York to isolate the New England colonies from the rest of America. If this succeeded, the British thought it would have the added bonus of keeping the French from supporting the revolutionaries. <laughs> Only one British army made it to the rendezvous point, where they were met by the Continental Army. The British initially held the upper hand but could not hold on to it with high casualties, and so couldn't push their advantage. The British were forced to retreat to Saratoga and surrender on October 17th. News of this surrender challenged the Mohawk's support of the British. With the Americans seemingly having the upper hand, many began to think that it would be better to renounce the Loyalist cause for their previous neutrality and try to make peace with the colonists. So it's here that Molly's role in the war becomes most apparent. So the Haudenosaunee Confederacy held a council of the five nations at on- Onondaga, five because the Oneida had very clearly peaced out by this Bye. point, Here, Molly stood up for the British, declaring her support for the Loyalist cause and encouraging the Confederacy to align themselves with the British. She reminded the nations of her husband's support of Haudenosaunee rights and asked what the Americans had ever done for the Confederacy except steal their lands. Yeah, except that that's what the fucking British had done. Mm. What the fuck ever? Molly reminded the assembled tribes that her brother was certain the British would return Haudenosaunee land at the conclusion of the war if they fought for the British. So the passion with which she spoke was persuasive, and the five remaining nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy decided to continue to support the British. The British realised the influence Molly held, and soon Major John Butler, the Deputy Indian Commissioner, began writing to Molly asking for her support in managing the First Nations peoples thronging to Fort Niagara, as in the falls, in search of protection. In late 1777, she and her family set out for the fort, where she met up again with her brother, mother, and the rest of her extended family. 
The fort was packed with Loyalist soldiers and refugees, and when Molly arrived, many First Nations refugees had resorted to building temporary shelters outside the fort's walls. While at Niagara, Molly again took on the role of go-between between her two worlds. Go-between, between. between. <laughs> Good writing, Hannah. And she again proved a persuasive and calming presence. She worked relentlessly to keep the Confederacy on the side of the British, and at least once left the fort to visit those left in Mohawk Valley to urge them to stay on the side of the Loyalists. By 1779, Washington wanted to remove the threat of Haudenosaunee's support for the Loyalists and sent a force under General John Sullivan to raid the remaining Haudenosaunee villages in western New York, destroying homes and crops and taking prisoners as hostages. For the Patriots, this plan had the added advantage that with all crops destroyed, the British would be forced to support their Haudenosaunee allies over winter. The British also worried that Sullivan's force would soon descend upon Fort Niagara. Whether because of this or because he felt Molly was demanding too much, the commander of the fort decided that Molly should move to Montreal. This plan did not particularly suit Molly because she would have to leave some of her family behind, including her mother, and she also felt that the remaining Confederacy relied on her. But whether she eventually agreed or was forced out, Molly and her children did end up in Montreal. But she wasn't there for long. Thousands of refugees from the American raids were now flocking to Fort Niagara and Molly realised she needed to return, if not only to support her people, but also to ensure that the devastation did not weaken their support for the British. Plus, she worried that if she stayed away, it would be seen as a sign of weakness or a sign that she herself was afraid the British could not protect her people. The governor of the province of Quebec, General Frederick Haldimont, agreed Molly had to return, writing to Guy Johnson that Miss Molly is to act as she thinks best, whether remaining in the province or returning to Seneca country, and that you will give her such presence as you may think necessary, and if she goes, provide for her journey as it seems to be a political one, end quote. And so Molly set out again back to Niagara on September 13th, 1779. Molly never made it to Niagara. And you make that sound so unnecessarily dramatic. What can I say? I live for the drama. Uh, so she doesn't die, but she only makes it to Carlton Island. Yes, named after guy number two from earlier. Carlton Island was roughly halfway between Montreal and Niagara, and Molly arrived there on September 29th, 1779. But she couldn't find a ship to take her on to the next leg of the journey, as all the ships had been reserved for soldiers trying to stop Sullivan's expedition, or, you know, expedition, or pillaging rampage intending to wipe out an entire people. Potato, potato. Spanish tomato. So when Molly arrived at Carlton Island, it was chaos. Not only with soldiers everywhere, but also more refugees seeking shelter and protection. So it seemed that Molly was also to be stuck here. She and her children were given room in the barracks, but she hoped it would only be temporary. But just because she hoped to be back on her way to Niagara soon didn't mean that Molly was going to hang around sunning herself. She understood that the Haudenosaunee refugees were restless and losing faith in the British, who had continually failed to send support against Sullivan and the American raiders. Younger Haudenosaunee warriors were bristling for a fight against the Americans who had destroyed their homes, but Molly urged them to wait until her brother and his force arrived at Carlton. She knew the situation at Niagara would be no different to what she faced on Carlton, so she sent word to Haudenosaunee clan mothers who were still at Niagara urging them to quell any unrest and urge support for the British. A particularly harsh winter prevented Haudenosaunee retaliation against the raiders, and so Molly was again crucial in curbing the tensions among stranded Five Nations peoples. The commandant of the island was particularly impressed with her efforts, writing to the Quebec governor that the Haudenosaunee's, quote, uncommon good behaviour is in a great measure to be ascribed to Miss Molly Brandt's influence over them, which is far superior to that of all their chiefs put together, unquote. Somehow, Molly was able to convince the Haudenosaunee leaders that the British still had First Nations interests at heart and that the best course of action would be to continue to support the British in the war. 
Her role also meant that Molly could greet newcomers to Carlton Island, and this meant she could gather useful information. In one particular instance, Molly befriended a fellow Mohawk woman called Mary Aaron, who had been the mistress of Major General Philip Schuyler, but later switched sides. I don't remember that in Hamilton. <laughs> While talking to Molly, Mary Aaron revealed valuable information about patriot movements, which Molly was able to pass on to the British. Apart from a few brief trips to her family in Montreal, Molly would remain on Carlton Island for the remainder of the war. Though the decisive Battle of Yorktown would take place in October 1781, when the British forces there surrendered, effectively ending the war, it wasn't until May the next year that those on Carlton Island heard the British had lost the war. News travels slowly when there's no internet. In the subsequent peace treaty, yet another Paris treaty... It's because it's like a nice neutral city with lots of I know, cafes. but you need better names for it. If, Par- you're, if like, you're going to have so many Paris treaties, change the name. Like Rue de Georges Paris treaty. Yeah, pick a street in Paris. Oh, like, yeah. come on, guys. Anyway, in the subsequent Paris treaty, the boundary between America and Canada was placed through the centre of the Great Lakes, which effectively cut a line through Haudenosaunee territories to the outrage, understandably, of the Confederacy, who had spent years supporting the British on the expectation that their land would be returned at the end of the war. Molly was shocked, but she still tried to control any discontent, at least until she'd heard from her brother, who had travelled to Montreal to find out the truth of the treaty's terms. The governor of Quebec, Haldimand, offered Joseph a compromise, since he was unable to hold the British promise. I think he did He did feel a little bit guilty about it, mm. like... He just... I mean, the losing side doesn't exactly get to choose where the border no, goes. No, no. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting because Americans got a lot more territory than they kind of should have. Yeah. Like, ignoring any, you know, colonisation stuff. Well, the British would just open up a new colony somewhere else, so they're probably like, fuck, we can't deal with the French coming back somewhere yeah. else as well. So it's quite interesting. Anyway, um, so this compromise was also probably to prevent any retaliation from disenchanted Haudenosaunee. Haldemand told Joseph Brand that any Haudenosaunee who wanted to relocate to the Canadian side of the border could be given land. At the same time, the current Inspector General of Indian Affairs, John Johnson, son of Sir William and effectively Molly's stepson, travelled to Niagara. There, he informed the Confederacy that the borders established in the 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanix, which was that earlier treaty that was to end the Pontiac's war against the British, uh, would be upheld. You know, like a liar. When the final version of the 1783 Paris Treaty was signed in September, formally ending the revolution, there was no mention of First Nations peoples, and all the land the British had agreed were Haudenosaunee lands in 1768 had been given to the Americans. This despite all promises and the fact that there were very few colonists in the area anyway. Some Haudenosaunee attempted to fight this, continuing armed resistance for many years against American settlers, but many realised that staying in America would leave them open to retaliation for siding with the British, or retaliation for being a Native American. Mm. It is likely that many thought of the Sullivan Expedition scorched earth campaign and wanted to move away from the threat of such violence. Though they were offered land in the new Haudenosaunee settlement in Canada, Molly and Joseph both moved to a new area set aside in Canada for British loyalists in what is present-day Kingston. Both were given houses by government order and eventually monetary compensation for losses suffered during the war. Molly only returned once to her homeland at Kanajahari in 1785 when the American government attempted to persuade Molly to work for them in the same sort of diplomatic role she'd played in the revolution. Having seen the destruction wrought by the Americans on the Mohawk Valley, though, Molly declined. She returned to Canada where she helped to build a new community and was a respected and wealthy member. Molly died on April 16th, 1796, from what, we're not sure, but probably some sort of illness. How old was she? Uh, 60. That's pretty old. 
yeah, that's for the, the right olden maths. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's no foul play probable. Um, her legacy is complicated. So in Canada, she's honoured as a person of national historic significance. And in Kingston, there is a Molly Brandt commemoration day. And she's celebrated with a bust near the site of her home. Um, she's celebrated particularly for fighting for the Mohawk people and the wider Haudenosaunee Confederacy, as well as her role in building Kingston. But she has also been criticised for picking the British over the interests of the Mohawk or the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Though it seems her intentions were to help her people, the result of the war was further destructions of First Nations land and cultures. But then it was likely that siding with the British, siding with the Americans or staying neutral would have resulted in the same way. There's just no easy answer here because the British have a fine history of destroying cultures and First Nations. They do. And we now know that the Americans have continued that fine tradition they have. to this day. By the way, just to be very clear, I'm using fine sarcastically. Yes. It is not a good tradition. Like... You- there's no good option, as we said at the start. Like, how do you pick? And no matter what happened, it could have ended up the same way. Like, yeah. if you side with the British, okay, the British lost, so, you know, your land's cut in two and you're forced to relocate. Or you but, side with the Americans, you win, but they have no reference to Native Americans in any of their documentation yeah. of the government. At least you know how to work the British, British. government and the British, like, systems, mm. and they don't know how similar the new American system is going to be. No, because you know, okay, it's a revolution, the Americans are fighting for independence, so they want to start a new type of nation. Mm. So obviously they want to do things differently to the British, and you don't know what way. And for all you know, it's like, we're going to get rid of all the Native Americans, yeah. which they did try to do. Yeah, and then if you stay neutral, whoever wins could do the same thing regardless. Yeah, and you're just going to get trampled constantly. Yeah. like you, or can't, you get wiped out. It, like the war is happening in your land, so you can't kind of just step back and watch things happen because your villages are probably going to be destroyed or trampled yeah. anyway. When you're not Switzerland with your Alps. Like, yeah. oh, what's happening in Belgium? Yeah. It's fine. You don't have any protection. People are yeah. going to be, like, taking your crops to feed their troops. Like, There's no way out of it. There's it's no a, way out of it. It's a civil war. Yeah. But between three, in a way, different countries. Yeah. And so Molly knew... She knew how the British operated. Like, she'd married a British man. She identified closely with the British. She, Her children were half British. Yeah, she grew up with, you know, European customs, like British customs particularly. So it makes sense to me that she'd be like, this seems the best course of action. Mm. I will convince people because I hold sway. I will convince people to support that. Because yeah. And better than the Confederacy having a schism, maybe. Like maybe if she yeah. had done that, half the chiefs would be like, let's fight with the Americans. The other half been like, let's fight with the British. Yeah. And then you lose even more land and more power and more of your culture yep. over like, it. This way, five of the six nations from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy stayed together for the war, except they're the United. And they're still together today. Like the Confederacy is still surviving today. So, you know, maybe. The good Confederacy. The good not Confederacy. The bad Confederacy. The bad Confederacy should die. So. It did. It lost. It lost bad. They it don't lost real, know that. They, they should know. They lost real fucking bad, Yankee Doodles. All right. So, you know. Molly may have helped keep the Confederacy going so that they could keep cultures and knowledge and stuff alive. Yeah. 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 So I guess that's what we have to say about Molly. I love Molly. All right. I think she's great. Yeah. So as we now know, um, as in Australia, there are still continual um, generational issues of trauma throughout Native people throughout North America and Canada. Um, so we've also elected to pay the rent, in a way, to the Native Women's Association of Canada who work on preventing violence and murder and abuse against Indigenous women in North America. So we are, we'll put a link to their doobly-doo in the show notes. Because uh, if if you don't know, there's um, an epidemic. Missing and murdered Indigenous women is this massive epidemic, particularly like it's around 
the world, but it's particularly bad in North America and Canada. Mm. Um, so look that up. Yeah, if you want like a to bum yourself out real bad, there's actually a Stacey Dooley, I believe, documentary mm. on it on Stan if you want to ruin your afternoon. It's very good. Very hard to watch, but very yeah. good. Um, so, yeah, so this is basically us trying to pay the rent in a way. Pay the far owed rent. Pay, pay, the, pay the British rent. Pay the British rent. It's just, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's... Um, so we have social media. We have a website where you can subscribe to an email where you get like an email and it tells you like when the next episode's coming out and stuff we learned in this episode and researching it that we didn't put in the episode because it's already very, very long. And memes. And memes and memes. Um, we'd also love it if you could write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um. Even if you don't want to write us a review, send us an email. Tweet us on tweet us on Twitter. Tweet us on Facebook. Um, because we'd love to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Yeah. Whether you hate our guts and wish we'd just stop talking in your ear, but then why were you listening to us in the first place? In summary, duh, duh, duh. Reviews, emails, website, socials, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and violence prevention of Canada or L'Association des Femmes Autosotones du Canada. And um, also, next week will be our last episode. Next week. Next fortnight. Next fortnight. We'll- sorry. That list was just like normal, 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 depressing. Yeah, sorry. It's just how my thesis ruined me. I'm just like, anyway, yeah, no. so genocide. Yeah. Um, so next fortnight will be our 10th episode, which is very exciting. We've had our so much final episode lovely... for the season. So yeah, we decided to like take a break after 10 episodes. Because it... semester is starting and, and we will be tired. Yeah, and so we'll be coming back around the week of Anzac Day because that's the most important day of the year and all that. Hashtag little play reference for some of you theatre buffs out there. Um, you're looking at me like I'm, you have no idea. I have no idea. Okay. I um, do musical theatre. I don't do Australian theatre. Yeah. Um, lots of bomb threats. That's a whole other story. So, yeah, I love um, a bomb threat. We'll That's my a, thesis. Oh, wrong kind of bomb. Oh. We'll be back in a fortnight with a lovely little return to a country we have been to before that isn't France and a very interesting war that we haven't seen before. So I'm very excited for that. I'm very excited. I'm the, very excited. The Dutch are there. The Dutch do pop up there. The Dutch are everywhere. They get away with it. Go right. back to Holland. The, the Netherlands. The I Netherlands. know it's the Netherlands. Yeah, sorry. You know. I can hear the ancestors crying out to me. Go back to the Netherlands. All right. Are we done? We're done. We're done. See you next fortnight. See you next fortnight.